0: But my encouragement to us, friends, is that if we quickly jump to not doing something because it might be offensive, but we're not sure, we miss out on a biblical conversation that would be edifying and encouraging to both people. You're listening to a sermon series titled, Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, it's always a privilege to teach God's Word. I'm thankful for the opportunity this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing in Romans 14 that we started last week. And today we're going to be seeing the practical application of verse 1, where Paul says that we're to welcome the one who is weak in faith. So how do we welcome and love our brothers and sisters in Christ who may disagree with us on disputable and secondary issues? What does it mean to not put a stumbling block in the way? How do we pursue peace and walk in love together? These answers are going to be answer- These questions are going to be answered in our text this morning. But before we study these verses, we must be reminded that this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands. It is the best-selling book in all of history. I think Pilgrim's Progress is number two on that list. Uh, but it is not merely a book. We know that. It is the very word of God. God created us. And he created the universe, and as creator, he has authority to mold his creation for his purposes. And we're thankful that he has not stayed silent. He has given us his word, and his word has authority, has authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be equipped, perfect, complete for every good work. We know that his word is inerrant and infallible. That means that it's absolutely true and that we can trust it. It's totally trustworthy. We know that the word of God is sufficient. That means we have everything we need for life and godliness. They're found in these pages. And we know that the word of God is active for today. It's powerful, it's living, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's nourishing, it's cleansing, and it's sanctifying. Charles Spurgeon said this, He said, it is not enough to have a Bible on the shelf. It is infinitely better to have its truth stored up within your soul. It is a good thing to carry your testament in your pocket. It is far better to carry its message in your heart. So let's come to God's word this morning with reverence and ask the Holy Spirit to grow us in obedience. But Let's pray as we begin. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful that we can have it in our language, that we can understand, Lord, that we can sit here and be under the teaching. And so we echo the words of Charles Spurgeon, Lord, that these truths that we read this morning would be stored up within our soul, that this message would be in our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up our eyes to understand your word, our hearts to Uh, to know it, to love it, and to obey it, Lord. It's for your glory and because you have loved us that we respond in love to you today. And it's it's in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, if you remember from last Sunday, uh, we learned that those who are weak in faith are tempted to pass judgment on the strong, while those who are strong in faith are tempted to despise the weak but we were reminded of the glorious truth that we see all over Romans, that there is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. And we have all been welcomed by the Lord through the redemption, through the blood of Christ. And we met two people. We met Claudius and Esther, and we observed a hypothetical situation that could have happened at a potluck in the early church. And Paul then gave us a glimpse of the judgment seat of Christ, reminding us that we will all stand before him and we must give an account. So in light of this future event, he's saying, why would you judge your brother or sister in these disputable matters? They will stand as believers before Christ as well. And Jesus is not going to ask you for your input on that day. Focus on your own walk with the Lord and seek to live in harmony and peace with others. Well, starting in verse 13 and continuing continuing through verse 7 of chapter 15, Paul instructs us on how to pursue peace together. And friends, we can only do that because of the work of Christ in it. We do it for the sake of Christ. We do it because we have the Holy Spirit. So keep in mind as we're going through these things, this is very clear. We're going to see several do nots. Do not do this, but do this. And remember that this is not a list that we do but it's uh, only by the Holy Spirit. Uh, The issue for the strong, mature Christians in this chapter is not so much to defend the freedom that they have, but to discern whether or not to use it or give it up based on how it will affect others. But it's not all on the stronger Christian. Both the strong and the weak have a responsibility to to be in fellowship and love with each other without judgment. And the weaker Christian has a responsibility not to bind his brother or sister's conscience. What does that mean? That means not to add a law where there is no law. On these disputable matters, you may have a very strong conviction, but God's word may not be clear or maybe say, hey, this is all right, but you need to watch out. If you have a strong conviction in that matter, it's wrong for you to come and try and force that on another believer. That's binding each other's conscience, adding a law where there is no law. So Claudius, he now knows that Esther's conscience will not let her eat shrimp. And Esther knows that Claudius may be working on a Saturday or doing other tasks. So how do they interact with each other in light of this? Should Claudius stop bringing shrimp to the church potluck? Well, today we're going to finish out this chapter, and we're going to be looking at six points of application. This is an application text, so that's how I've organized it, six points of application directly from God's word. Some are quite short, some are a bit longer. Here they are. First, we're going to see that we don't cause stumbling. In verse 13, we don't cause grieving, as the passage continues. We're not to cause devastation. We need to remember our witness and not forget our witness. Then we're going to see that we don't destroy the work of God. Very serious. And then finally, as we wrap it up, we're going to see that we need to hold fast to our convictions. Hold fast to our convictions. Well, let's look again at verse 13. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So in light of verses 10 through 12, the previous verses, we see therefore, in light of the fact that we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And this is a reminder and reminding to us that God has the ultimate authority to judge the minds and hearts of his people And always keep in mind that this is not referring to clear sin and disobedience to God's commands in Scripture. We are called to judge one another in a loving way, those who claim to be believers, but either are living in sin or denying the essential truths of God's word. Jude, in his book, he he tells us to show mercy on those who doubt, but to save others by snatching them from the fire. Snatch them out. And also this text in Romans is talking about true believers, believers who desire to obey God's word. They love him, but they are disagreeing about non-salvific secondary issues, personal liberty issues. So look at verse 13. There's two words, or you may have a phrase in your Bible. In the ESV, the phrase is "pass judgment, and the second word is decide. If you have the New King James, the words are judge and resolve. The New American Standard uses the words judge and determine. And the NIV uses two phrases, stop passing judgment and make up your mind. And so even though we have uh, two different English words or phrases here, it's the same word in the Greek. The word is krino. uh, And the same word can have different connotations. So we're looking at this word judge. It can be used in the positive or negative sense. The negative would be, oh, man, you're just judgmental. Or the positive sense would be, oh, use your best judgment. Make a wise decision. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's using both aspects of the word to teach us. We shouldn't be judgmental of our brothers and sisters, but instead we should use our best judgment in each situation to promote peace and love and to help them in their walk with Christ. And so there's this phrase here, phrase we use often, never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. We use it with the right intentions. We don't want to unnecessarily cause offense or cause anyone to sin against their conscience by our actions. And Paul gives us the same warning in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9. He says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And in context in this passage, Paul is speaking about meat that was being offered to idols and eating that and the difficulties that arise from it. And he's very clear in verse 12 of that same passage where he says that if we do this, we are sinning not only against our fellow believers, but we're sinning against Christ. So it's very serious. But in this serious warning, we need to make a distinction between offense and leading someone to sin. Uh, Often when we use this phrase, it's put in the context of not wanting to offend someone, but it's often not clear where they actually stand on a particular issue. And so we often make a choice just out of caution and say, okay, well, I'm not going to do this thing because I'm not sure what they think on this issue. But my encouragement to us, friends, is that if we click, quickly jump to not doing something because it might be offensive, but we're not sure, we miss out on a biblical conversation that will be edifying and encouraging to both people. And to illustrate this, we're going to look at three contexts. We're going to look at the uh, Hebrew context. We're going to look at the Roman Gentile context, and then our context today. So think of a believing Jew who has strong convictions against eating certain food. What's their perspective? Well, they would say, well, God has chosen us. He he chose chose us out of all these other nations. He made us a missionary nation for his glory. And eating unclean animals was a distinctive of the pagan idol worship in child-sacrificing Canaanites, among others. So why in the world would I want to, to participate in this and defile myself with something that God clearly forbids in the Old Testament? What about the Gentile context in Paul's time? The Gentile, who is recently saved, he cannot fathom eating meat, that he knows has been offered to idols, sacrificed to idols, why? Because his perspective would be, well, before I got saved, I participated in these pagan idol-worshiping rituals, so I cannot in good conscience eat food that I know was used in idol worship. It goes, totally goes against who I am now in Christ, and I don't want to be associated with that at all. Well, how about our context today? The drinking of alcohol is a great example. Scripture is clear that drinking alcohol is not sinful, but there are warnings that come with it, and there are good reasons to abstain from it. And the most important reason would be the effect it could have on a former alcoholic. A believer, a strong believer, even drinking in moderation, even drinking biblically and giving God glory for it, could easily put a stumbling block in front of this believer and cause them to sin in drunkenness and addiction. You could... Add watching movies to that. Watching certain movies could be an issue. What we see affects us, and it can lead others to sin. And my point in giving these examples is for us to obey Scripture, to decide, to determine, to resolve, to discern if we are truly causing someone to stumble into sin. Not doing something just because we're afraid of how it may look or... Because they might get mad at us, or we're afraid they're gonna judge us, is not the proper reason. We must search the scriptures together and let God's word guide us. Last week, one of the application points was to discern our cultural baggage. Do we have a certain view just because we were raised in a certain way? It must be evaluated from scripture. Well, in that same chapter of 1 Corinthians 8, Verse 1 says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And Warren Wearsby, he gives the example of a child who is afraid of the dark and is scared that there is a monster underneath the bed. And the parents, of course, have the knowledge that there is no such monster. Everything is fine. Everything is secure. But that knowledge alone is not going to help their child. They just say, oh, yeah, there's nothing there. Don't worry about it. We know it's not there. No, what helps? Well, it's when the parent sits down and lovingly explains to their, to their children that there is no monster. Maybe they look underneath the bed. They spend time in prayer together. They talk through it. And then the child can go to sleep without fear. And Worm Wearsby says, knowledge plus love helps the weak person grow strong. And so we, as stronger believers, maybe you put yourself in that category. Maybe not. That's okay. We may have the knowledge according to God's word, and we can say, oh, God's word clearly sees th- uh, says this, so you just need to know that and move forward. That's not going to help. We need to sit down and lovingly explain together, talk back and forth. With that, knowledge plus love helps the weak person grow strong. Well, verse 14 brings us to the second application point we have in this text. Look at verse 14 again. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And we see here that we're not to cause grieving. And Paul begins by stating that he is convinced that nothing is unclean in and of itself. He says he's persuaded in the Lord Jesus. And so this shows us that this is not a personal opinion but something that he knows by revelation from the Lord. This is divine revelation. Remember who Paul was before he was saved. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He would have followed the Hebrew dietary laws to the letter very strictly. He would have known them and followed them. But now he understands the vision that was given to Peter in Acts 10. You remember this? God tells Peter that now no animal is unclean. He says, rise, kill, and eat, to which many of us would say amen to that. Uh, But Peter was not sure. He protested at first, and God told him very clearly, what God has made clean, do not call common. And God actually told them that three times to underscore the importance of it and probably to convince Peter of this truth. But it wasn't only about food. This was also a metaphor and pointing towards the Gentiles coming to Christ. The, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they would have, they would have looked at the Gentiles, any other nation, as unclean. But the Lord is saying, no, the way for salvation is now open to the Gentiles. So Peter, go and visit Cornelius and preach the gospel to him. And that's exactly what he did. But it wasn't only Peter who spoke about this. Jesus himself said in Mark 7:15, "There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him." It's our sinful hearts that display these things, what comes out of our hearts. And Paul, in another place, in 1 Timothy, he addresses this as well. When he's talking about false teachers in 1 Timothy 4, he says that they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the strong Christian is right in his or her conviction to enjoy anything that God does not call sinful. Conversely, the weak Christian would be wrong in his understanding about some of these things. But it's important to say that they would be wrong not in a heretical or immoral way, but wrong in the sense that they don't have a complete understanding yet of God's word. And because of that, their conscience is overly sensitive. And that's why Paul says here, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Uh, one of my favorite sports is ping pong. Uh, and I've played um, several, several games with Ryan Russo and others. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but as I was studying this week, I was reading R.C. Sproul's commentary on Romans, and he actually wrote about a friend of his who came to the conviction that he was sinfully addicted to the game of ping pong. And he needed to evaluate his involvement in the game because it was starting to take over. He was neglecting his family. He was n- neglecting his work because of it. Because of it. And if you've seen professional ping pong players, they have it in the Olympics, you can watch these guys go at it at extremely fast. And you can see the, all the time and dedication they've put into playing that game. We could see how that could become an idol in somebody's life. But here's what this person didn't do. He didn't go on to say that ping pong was inherently evil and that no one should play it. That would be horrible if it was true. But R.C. Sproul goes on to say this. The principle here is clear. If we believe that something is a sin, even if it is not, yet we participate in it, then we have committed a sin because we have done something we believe to be wrong, whether or not it actually is wrong. This is acting against our conscience, sinning, against our conscience. And we remember Martin Luther's words at his trial for heresy where he was told to recant his biblical beliefs. What did he say? He said, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. He said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And Martin Luther understand what Paul was teaching in Romans 14. The problem, though, with our conscience before Christ is that it is fallen. It is sinful like the rest of us. And so it can be infected. It can be seared by sin. But praise the Lord that the redeeming work of Christ, the work that he does in us, that our conscience becomes reoriented. And we can echo with Martin Luther and say, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Paul's emphasis, though, here is how our words and actions affect the spiritual growth of our fellow believers. He says, if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So if a liberty you have is causing your brother or sister to grieve, to be hurt, then out of love, you should be willing to lay that liberty aside. And the word "grieve" here, it means to cause pain or distress. And it can be caused in a couple ways. Sometimes when a weaker Christian observes another Christian say or do something that he believes is sinful, and the hurt can only be magnified if it's somebody that you look up to, it's somebody that you respect. And of course, the worst situation is when a weaker Christian is led to compromise the convictions of his conscience. This can lead to deep feelings of guilt and can damage the peace and joy that he has in Christ. So we must not carelessly flaunt our freedoms. The one who does that is not walking in love. But of course, this must come with conversation and honesty between believers. If you are offended, if you have an issue with another believer, you need to go and speak with him. You need to have a biblical conversation. Don't keep it in. That can lead to bitter and anger and all kinds of things. Don't do that. Well, in the second half of verse 15, the language gets even more serious because Paul says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And so our third point this morning is to not cause devastation. The title of the sermon today is Peace in the Kingdom. And so how are we promoting peace in the kingdom? By not doing some things and by doing others. So the third way we can promote peace is not to cause spiritual devastation. And the word in Greek is apollomy, which means to cause utter devastation. I just want to recommend to you a resource that I use in my study. This is Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary. It's got many of the words... In Scripture, and so you can do a word study. You can look up a word in Scripture if you want to know more about it. You can find the instances that it is mentioned in the Bible. You can find the Greek and the meaning behind it. It's very helpful, so highly recommend this if you want to know more about a certain word in in Scripture. But Vines defines this devastation as not not extinction, but ruin, loss, not of being, but of well-being. And so the idea here is that the stronger believer can severely severely devastate the spiritual growth of another Christian. And this once again highlights the seriousness of how we steward our liberty in Christ. Paul's saying, would you harm your brother's and sister's growth over food? Come on, that's ridiculous. All things may be lawful, Paul says, we're going to read that in a moment, but often not profitable, not edifying, not beneficial. And this is surely the case here. In verses 16 through 19, Paul changes the focus slightly to the world who is watching. And so the fourth way that we can apply this in our life is to not forget our witness. Don't forget your witness in the watching world. Look at verse 16. He says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Friends, the way that we conduct ourselves as a church can provide a wonderful witness to the watching world, or it can forfeit our witness and testimony. It is possible to so abuse our liberty with other believers that we create conflicts in the church that spill out into the city. Our sin in this area can cause unbelievers to criticize us, to condemn, to scoff, and even blaspheme the name of the Lord. You remember the indictment that Paul had against self-righteous Jews in Romans chapter two. He said, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Extremely serious. It's a little bit different situation there, but the result is similar. Friends, the liberty that we have from God in these areas is a good thing. Don't doubt in that. But this good thing should never be used in a way to cause our brothers and sisters to stumble, be grieved or hurt, and it should never, never give the world an excuse to be spoken of as evil. And I'm so thankful that God's word is so clear and helpful to us. All the examples we need are right here in his word. So I'm going to give you two examples here, Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 10. So in Acts 15, we find the context of the Jerusalem council. And this was the first time the leaders of the church came together. And they came together to denounce a heresy that had popped up in the form of the Judaizers, the Judaizers, Can't say it. Judaizers came along and they said, We're going to add a work to salvation. You must be circumcised in order to be saved. And we see throughout church history other councils uh, popping up over the years to denounce other heresies that came in. But this wasn't the only agenda item at this meeting. After they uh, made it clear that this heresy was not going to be tolerated, there was something else. They said that care should be taken not to offend the consciences of weaker believers, both Jew and Gentile. Verse 29 of Acts 15 says this, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And so sexual immorality seemed to be a problem in the early church. Unfortunately, it continues to be a problem as well. But the other three requirements, they're a little bit different. Sexual immorality, that's a clear sin. But the other three mentioned have to do with religious laws and ceremony, both on the Jewish side and the Gentile, the pagan Gentile side. And like I mentioned earlier, the newer Gentile believer could not bring himself to eat meat that had been involved in pagan idolatry. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians. So let's turn there. Let's turn there together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll have some insight in this area. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 23 and read most of the uh, rest of the chapter. Verse 23 says this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. That's what we're talking about today. What will build up? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his, referring to the other believer. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So our friend Claudius. You, along with your new brother in Christ, Claudius, go to an unbeliever's house for dinner. As you are served a meal, your host rather proudly mentions that this meat has been consecrated in a pagan sacrifice. Claudius is immediately disturbed and conflicted, and he whispers to you, I don't feel comfortable eating this meat. So what do you do? Well, according to God's word, out of love for your brother, you both decide to graciously refuse the meat, with explanation to your host, understanding that it is better to risk offense with the unbeliever than to try and force your brother to sin against his conscience. And although this might offend the unbeliever temporarily, the Holy Spirit may also use this situation to show the depth of love that you have for one another and draw him to the gospel. And so Paul's exhortation to us is this, don't apologize or unnecessarily give up your freedom in Christ and don't let your conscience be bothered by these things, but on the flip side, be willing and open to give up your liberty if it might cause spiritual harm to a believer. It is much better for our witness to the outside world and for our relationships with fellow Christians to show love rather than to demand our rights. And letting go of our freedom is such a small price to pay when we consider what is important in the kingdom. Amen. This is something I had to grow in in my own life. As many of you know, Katrina and I have had the privilege of serving in Russia and in Siberia as missionaries for four years. And the stereotype with Russians and vodka is true. It is true. Uh, when you get together with uh, unbelievers especially, There is a shot glass at every table setting, and there will be multiple bottles of vodka on the table. And they will—it does any occasion would be an excuse, a reason to toast one another and to take shots. And the Russians love to toast. They have a toast for every situation. Many Russians have uh, they all know the same toast. It's memorized phrases that, that they they bring they grow up hearing and so they toast to everyone getting there, they toast to everyone sitting down, they toast to the first course, the second. They toast to good things that are happening, bad things that are happening. They toast one more for the road, you know. I mean everything. And so we had to be very careful as believers, not to get totally plastered by the time one of these dinners had ended. But at the same time, we were trying to have a balance and to be respectful to our hosts. And so we would take a sip here and there, but we we wouldn't be downing shots at every chance we got because we knew it would be very dangerous. Uh, But we had some friends and we had fellow coworkers in the same mission that had strong convictions against drinking any alcohol. And I remember my own thinking at the time, my own thinking in uh, that moment was, hey, man, you just you need to get over that. You need to look where we are. Look what our purpose is here in Russia. We need to be respectful to our host. You know, Just take a sip. You don't have to get drunk. Of course, we don't want that, but just take a sip here and there and just do it for the sake of these unbelievers. But I now know that I was wrong in my thinking of that, and I should have more encouraged and stood with my brothers and sisters who had uh, an issue of conscience in that area. Because Paul reminds us, In verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Friends, if we would grow in our understanding of this verse, we would be saved from silly disagreements that can tear churches apart. He talks about righteousness, peace, and joy. These attributes describe the church. So as we look at righteousness, our pursuit of righteousness should stand far above our desire to claim any rights or privileges we have. And remember, this is not a self-righteous pietism. It's not pharisaical hypocrisy. The Pharisees were all about pursuing righteousness, but it was based on a prideful, hey, look at me, look at how I'm following the law. I'm so holy. That was their attitude, and it was void of a true relationship with the Lord. Jesus in Matthew 5.20 said, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And we know from the rest of scripture that no one is truly righteous. We can't attain to that. And all our supposed righteous works before Christ are considered as filthy rags. And that's the big thing of Romans, that we can't come to God with our pseudo-righteousness. The only way we can stand before God on that day is because we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ himself. And R.C. Sproul, again, he says that righteousness is a pursuit of holiness. And to be mature, a mature Christian in Christ is to live according to the principles of God. And how is that displayed? Through the fruit of the Spirit. And the next attribute is one of those. The next attribute is peace. What does peace in the kingdom of God look like? Well, it's defined as the loving relationships of believers who are more interested in serving others rather than in pleasing themselves. And we just learned this recently in Romans 12. Romans 12.10 reminds us, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Peace and righteousness. And then the final mark is joy. And joy is a mystery to the world. It's that quality that unbelievers often comment on, but they can't quite put their finger on it. Then they say, oh man, there's just something, there's just something about you that's different. Something about you, there's something about the church that you go to, they have a strong attraction to it that the Holy Spirit uses to draw them to Christ. And the church that has no visible joy, I'm sorry to say, is a dead church. It is. The kingdom of God is marked by joy. Why? Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying, why should we complain and fight about who does or who doesn't eat meat or drink wine? That doesn't mark us. We love what God loves, and we love those for whom Jesus died. Well, verse 18 shows us a blessing of the loving and selfless believer. It says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And the Greek word for approved is dokimos, it means to accept something after a very careful examination, similar to how a jeweler would carefully inspect a diamond under a, microphone, a, a, a magnifying glass to determine its value. And Paul expounds on this in Philippians 2.15. He says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And Paul himself, we know, was an example and lived this out. He gave up his right to be married, and he was often not paid for his ministry, even though he could claim that, so that he would not be a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So then, verse 19 exhorts us to pursue peace, because that is what builds up the body. We chase after it. That's what to pursue means. To pursue means to chase after something. And what is the opposite of peace? Peace. Hmm? War. Yeah. Opposite of peace is war. It's conflict. It's strife. So we are not to pursue conflict. We are not to be chasing after fights and controversy, but pursue peace. And that's his exhortation to us. That's what will build the body of Christ. We have two more application points in this text. And the fifth way to have peace in the kingdom is don't destroy the work of God. Very serious. Verse 20. He says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So what is the work of God? Well, in this context, it's referring to the growth of the believer. It's Ephesians 2.10, which says, we are his what? Workmanship, right? The work of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. You might have noticed recently there have been many who have been offended in our nation over the last couple years as we've seen um, certain people uh, pull down and destroy historic statues in our nation. I recently, I just read and saw this week that they just took down the famous statue of Teddy Roosevelt in the National History Museum, Uh, and the reasons why was because of racism, and they used the word that Teddy Roosevelt was unwoke. That was their reasoning, and it's horrible to see that, but imagine the offense if somebody would come and destroy the Statue of Liberty, pull it down, blow it up. That would be very, very offensive, and most of us all here remember 9-11 and how horrible that was for us, and... The word offense doesn't even come close to describing our feelings and the horrific events that happen. But Paul's saying here to tear down the work of God in a believer's life is worse than all of that. So much worse because he or she is the one for whom Christ died. Remember from 1 Corinthians 8, when we do this, we not only sin against them, we are sinning against Christ himself. And in verse 20, Paul is reminded us that he's not speaking about sinful things, but our discretionary liberties. And a word sometimes used to describe these things is a word adiaphora. It means indifferent things, things that are neither right nor wrong. They're spiritually neutral. And Paul's already defined it and used the word opinions in verse 1, not to quarrel over opinions or non-essentials. These things are clean, he says, but the danger is that we will use them carelessly and cause our fellow believers to sin, to stumble. And the word anything here in this verse shows us that this command transcends the issues that Paul was talking about and can apply to much more. Several things we could think of in that area. Well, we conclude our study today with the sixth and final point of application. So sum it up. Hold fast, hold fast. To your convictions. Hold fast. In our final verses here, we see a blessing to those who have confidence in their liberty before the Lord and an exhortation to stand firm for those who may be tempted to go against their conscience. Look at verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts, is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Verse 22 addresses the stronger believer. He says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Other translations pose it as a question. If you have a new King James here this morning, you will see a question. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. And the idea here is not that we keep it secret, but to enjoy it in faith as a good gift from the Lord. If we are convinced in good conscience before the Lord, we dare not call it sinful, and we do not waver in that belief. Because he said, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment upon himself. But verse 23 is addressed to the weaker Christian. And Paul's counsel to this person is to hold fast, because you will be sinning if you go against your conscience and your convictions. If you are compelled to reverse or change your thinking in one of these matters, it has to be from your own conviction of faith and your own study of God's word. If you eat meat, if you drink alcohol, if you watch a certain movie, you can fill in the blank. If you do that because of pressure from a stronger believer, then you are violating your conscience and sinning. And this once again highlights the importance of what verse 5 tells us, that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Our convictions on these matters must come from a faithful study of God's word and based on that alone, not on tradition, not on our upbringing, not because a good friend says it's okay, through prayer and study. Well, next Sunday, we're going to finish out this section as we get into chapter 15, and we're going to see the example of Jesus in these things, something we always have to go back to Even our Savior did not please himself, Paul says, but willingly went to the cross in accordance to the Father's perfect will and plan. And that's, brothers and sisters, friends, that's what binds us all together. We can live out these verses because we have been born again, because we have been given a new heart, because we are part of a new family. Not out of a moral list of obligations that we check off, make sure... You know, we think we're getting points with God. Not at all. It's only because he's given us a new heart and the Holy Spirit is within us that enables us to live these things, live out, to walk in love with our fellow brothers and sisters. And that's our exhortation for you this morning. I don't know all of you here this morning. There very well may be some who are not truly saved here this morning. And so it's our desire that you would come into the family, that you would be born again, that the Lord would give you a new heart, And that only comes from repentance and faith alone in what Christ has done, in his finished work. And it's marked. We can look at God's word and see marks of a believer. Do you have a desire to study God's word? Do you have a desire to be with other believers? Do you have a desire to serve the Lord with joy and obedience to his word? Are the fruits of the spirit being manifested in your life? That's what we base our salvation on not on because we walked down an aisle, because we answered an altar call, because we prayed a certain prayer, because we raised our hand, or even because we were baptized. No, it's only we know in our hearts that we have truly come before God, repented of our sin, say, Lord, I need you desperately. I need you to forgive me. I know I am a worthless sinner that I stand condemned before you. Your wrath is still upon me. I need that to be forgiven through the work of Christ alone, not on anything that I could ever do. And so if you have doubts this morning, we would love to talk with you about that. There are many here who would love to share the good news, answer questions with you. But for those of us who are believers here, in the meantime, may we have loving biblical conversations about disputable matters. May we seek to build one another up, to show honor and preference to one another, to edify and to help grow each other's faith for their own sanctification, but ultimately for God's glory. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, what a privilege it is once again to be in your word this morning with brothers and sisters. We thank you for these practical verses before us, these clear verses on how to live out our walk, how to walk in love and in understanding with our fellow believers who may have different convictions, may have different thinkings on these secondary issues, Lord. We ask that you give us strength and peace to walk forward in unity together. Lord, we, we know that we cannot do any of this without your help. We know that even, even in doing these things, we are imperfect, and often our pride will rise up, and we will, we will want to defend and push our way. And we've all done that, Lord, and so we ask forgiveness for that, and we ask that you would grow us in understanding, it would grow us, that we would be pursuing peace together, not pursuing conflict, not pursuing our own rights, our own way, but that you would do a new work in us and bind us together in the gospel. Lord, you are such a gift of grace. Your son is a gift of grace that has been given to us. And we can only say that it's not through us. It's not us at all, but it's only through the work of Christ in us. And so it's in his matchless name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisishoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.